with you after a week away, and good to be back in Numbers together. As we resume our studies today, we're picking up where we left off in Numbers chapter 9. And today, as uh, we will hear, uh, we, we'll learn about the Israelites finally setting out from the Mount of Sinai to begin their journey toward the Promised Land. The narrative picks up after the recounting of the, uh, the second Passover uh, in the wilderness, and uh, picking up on Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. And we're going to read to the end of chapter 10. That's a long passage. Uh, we're going to read all of it, but we're not going to focus on all of it in our study today, not because it's not important, uh, but because a large portion of that, from Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, uh, to roundabout verse 28, a lot of the details that we've seen already a few times, and we'll see the marching order of the tribes and the names of their leaders, uh, with just one variation, earlier we heard that all of the holy things went in the middle of the camps as they set forth. Now we find that the Gershonites and the Merarites go between the camp of Judah and the camp of Reuben so that when the holy things get to the next campsite, the tabernacle's already erected. Uh, so that's one small uh, change that you'll notice, but we're not going to get into those uh, during our study today. We'll mostly be looking and focusing on the first half of our reading today, but reading Numbers chapter 9, verse 15, to the end of chapter 10. Before we read this passage together, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and seek his blessing on our study together. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Lord and God, you who lead your people perfectly, we pray that you would lead us to yourself. Uh, through this word, we ask that you would uh, guide and direct our hearts, our minds, uh, focus our attention on you and upon the Savior that we see, uh, even shrouded here, yet dwelling among your people. We thank you, Father, for the joy and the life that we have with you and the promise of an eternal inheritance kept with him. Help us, Lord, as we read, to hear and rejoice in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 9, beginning to read in verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud remained over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. And according to the command of the Lord, they set out. Sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and 
you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you, not, you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. In the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. In the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. The cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies, and over their company was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. Over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zoar, And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helan. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. The standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Elizer, the son of Shedeir. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies, and over their company was Elishamah, the son of Amihud. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazer. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies. And over their company was Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Akron. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. This was the order of the march when the people of Israel, by their companies, when they set out. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. 
When it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I think uh, even if we tried, uh, it would be hard for us to overestimate the importance of this moment for the people of God. They had by this time been at the base of Mount Sinai for nearly a year. Longer than a year, 13 months earlier, they had fled from Egypt. They passed through walls of water on their left and their right, and they came into the land of freedom in their God. They passed on to the mountain of God where the Lord called him his. And he gave them gifts and blessings. He gave them his laws. He gave them his covenant. He extended forgiveness when they didn't deserve it. And then for nearly a year, that wilderness around that mountain became their home. Life became as normal as they probably imagined life could be in the wilderness. There were things happening, of course. There were craftsmen building a a tabernacle. There were people getting ready for the long journey to Canaan. But for the vast majority of people, for most of them, life went on in a new sort of normal. They entered a, a kind of suspended anticipation. Think for a moment. Among a population of people somewhere around or just below two and a half million people, how many babies do you think were born there in that first year at the base of Mount Sinai? How many young couples took their marriage vows in the wilderness? How many relatives had to be buried? How many six-year-olds lost their first tooth? Think for a minute how many ulcers and how many hangnails and how many sleepless nights the average Israelite endured while they waited in the wilderness, waiting to begin, wondering when they would finally get moving toward that land of promise they had heard about. Then the day came. Chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted. The cloud lifted and the people set out. And they probably asked the same question that you would have asked if you were in their sandals. Well, now what? What's next? Now where do we go? Now what do we do? The Lord has claimed us. The Lord has brought us this far. The future is staring back at us, waiting to be written. But what do we do next? And how will we know? You know the situation. A family together is trying to decide if mom needs more specialized care than you can give her in the home. A church is looking to call its next senior pastor. A child is facing, for the first time, having two different bedrooms in two different towns between her two different parents. Something has changed, and maybe you saw the change coming, and maybe it took you by surprise, but whether or not, here you are. Life is different, and you can't go backward, and now what do you do? Sinclair Ferguson has a very helpful little book called Discovering God's Will. It talks about just that, discovering God's will, and in that book he says this. He says, the assurance of God's guidance is one of the characteristics of the Christian. It's something that belongs to the believer. He goes on to say that being assured that God will guide us is one of those things that marks us out from the rest of the world. It's a distinguishing characteristic, and well, it should mark us out from the rest of the world. If we believe 
that God is living and active. If we believe that he's actually involved in the lives of the people that he's called to himself, then we can have confidence that he will guide us through our changing circumstances. We can believe that the Lord always leads his people perfectly. That's our main point today, our, our big idea, if you want to call it that, that the Lord always leads his people perfectly. We're going to see that today in the way that the Lord led his people through the wilderness, and, and we'll consider uh, the way that the Lord also leads us. But in our text, I want to draw your attention to at least three different blessings, three ways that the Lord leads his people. They are this. The Lord leads his people through his presence, he leads them through his commands, and he leads them through his reminders. His presence, his commands, and his reminders. Well, the Lord leads his people through his presence. This, this really is more of a half point, because by now, in Numbers, we have seen this over and over and over again. This is one of the major themes of the book that we're studying together, that God is with his people. He gives them the grace and the blessing of his presence. Now in the time that the Israelites had camped at Mount Sinai, they saw that pillar of cloud that led them out of Egypt go and, and fall and cover the top of Mount Sinai. And then when the tabernacle was built, they saw it descend uh, and go above the, the tabernacle and the altar and now as they're setting out, the same pillar of cloud and fire moves before them into the wilderness. It goes to seek out a resting place for the people. As we think about what this, this pillar of smoke and fire was all about, we might want to talk about uh, the good things that came to Israel because they had this blessing. Right? When we, when we read of the people coming out of Egypt back in Exodus we find that the, the cloud went behind them instead of in front of them to become a wall of protection between the people and their pursuing captors. And then when, uh, when night fell in the wilderness, in our text, verse 15 of chapter 9 says that the cloud had the appearance of fire. We find in other places that it, it had the appearance of fire so that the people could travel by day and by night. It was a blessing for them. This cloud was a perpetual manifestation that the Lord their God was leading them, that he was with them, and there are all sorts of secondary auxiliary benefits we might want to talk about that came to the people because of the presence of this cloud, but by far the most significant feature of this glory in the wilderness is the reminder that God himself was present with his people. That was what the cloud communicated. It told them that God was with them. So at the close of our passage, Chapter 10, verse 34, the cloud is called the cloud of the Lord that was over them. By day or by night, whenever they set out, earlier in our text it says, so it was always. Whether they deserved the Lord to stay with them or not, so he was always with them. The cloud of the Lord, it says. Not just a north star, not just some navigational symbol, not just uh, something that would lead them, not just a cloud of glory and guidance, the cloud of the Lord. His assurance that he was with his people. And then when they settled into a new campsite, uh, throughout their journeys, Moses would pray. What did he pray? Verse 36. When the ark rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. 
Actually, Moses has two prayers here. A prayer when, uh, when the Lord goes out, and then a prayer when the Lord comes back. And Calvin, commenting on these verses, says that these verses portray the Lord like a conscientious father who in the morning goes out of the home and goes about caring for the business, and then he comes home and he's present and he's aware of the needs of his family and he gives to his family what they need because he's with them. Again, we've seen this before. We don't need to say much beyond this, but doesn't it make all the difference in the world to your faith to know that wherever God calls his children to go, there he promises to be with you as well? Don't you remember being sent on an errand as a child? Don't you remember having to go down into the basement where the spiders crawled in the corners to, uh, to retrieve some item and bring it back upstairs? And didn't it make a difference when your father said, come on, I'll go with you? They were just irrational, childish fears. They were just small things that now, uh, through the lens of maturity, as you look back on them, you realize you didn't need to be afraid of that now that you know, but at the time you were, it didn't, make it, didn't it make a difference that someone was with you? Well, the Lord knows the way that our hearts work, and he knows that spiritually we're just as fearful as these little children, waiting for our faith to implode at any moment if we think that someone is not with us. And so Jesus sends out uh, his church into the world, into the world that he said would hate them and persecute them and put them to death just as they hated and persecuted and put him to death. And we prayed for our brothers and sisters in Turkmenistan for whom that is happening. And the Lord sent them out with an errand, a task to be done. And he said, go out and make disciples of all nations and tribe and tongue. And by the way, when you go, I will be with you, yea, even to the end of the age. Doesn't it make a difference to the work of the church? Doesn't it make a difference to your faith today? To know that God gives his presence to all who have been united to faith uh, in Jesus Christ. Doesn't it make a difference to know that he's with you, that he dwells in you by his Holy Spirit? That he says he will never leave you or forsake you, no matter how dark the path is that you're called to walk. Now, in a sense, this, this really is just the background. Uh, it's just the scenery behind everything else that's happening in the passage, but this gives comfort to God's guidance. This promise that though we, we no longer see his cloud and his fire, yet he's with us. He leads his people by his presence. Secondly, the Lord leads his people through his commands. This is the idea that closes out chapter 9, verses uh, 15 to the end of the chapter. That narrative, in a nutshell, presents us with a God who sovereignly declares by his own movement where his people ought to go and when they ought to go, and then it shows us the unhesitating obedience of the people in following him. There's a fair bit of repetition as, as we read it. You could hear it. They camped, they set out, they camped, they set out. Wherever God was, there they went as well. The core text can be found in verses 17 to 18. It says, Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord they encamped. Last phrase there in the beginning of verse 18, if this were a song, that would be the chorus. 
So it's repeated again in verse 20. It's repeated again in verse 23 for emphasis. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. And when we read that, we think about God's guidance, it seems almost frustratingly simple. It presents to us the idea that following God is something like a binary choice, a yes or a no, a go or a don't go, obey or disobey. It's exactly what we find difficult about our everyday lives. The fact that most of our choices don't seem like anything like what they were faced with. Right, so we tell ourselves that they had it easier than we do. It's much harder for us to follow God's guidance now. All they had to do was watch the cloud and go where the cloud went. Wouldn't it be simple if life was like that? Could you imagine deciding on a college by taking out all the brochures and laying them on the table and waiting for a tiny cloud of smoke to, to rest over the one that you were supposed to apply to? Could you imagine choosing the treatment option because it was the one that glowed when you turned off the lights? The Lord doesn't work that way. And we say, oh, to be faced with such simple decisions. Oh, if life and guidance were just a matter of obedience and disobedience. Now, we're going to come back to that pity party in just a moment. But for a moment first, don't miss the communion and the fellowship that is happening between the Lord and his people in the verses that we just read. All this talk of, of camping and setting out, even in verse 23, there's an undeniable responsiveness, the hallmark of any good relationship that says they kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Do you see that responsiveness? God is speaking and they're willing to listen. God is leading and they are willing to follow. Think about any friendship, any marriage, any working relationship you've ever been in, and think of how many of the hiccups and the arguments that you fall into in those relationships that happen because of what we typically call communication difficulties. Right? You know the kind? One person is speaking, and the other person either can't understand or won't understand. We say there are wires get crossed that something gets lost in translation between our head and our mouth and their ears. And of course, when we are the one who's being misunderstood, we always assume that it's their fault. And when they're the one who's being misunderstood, we still put the blame on them. But we know, I think, in our heart of hearts, that in most cases, what we really need to do is to get outside of ourselves. What we really need is to actually hear what the other person is saying rather than what we assume they probably mean before the conversation ever gets started. What we need is to trust that other person enough to let them speak for themselves before we begin to speak in return. I think we know, I think we'd agree that that's how it happens in our human relationships and that brings us back to this pity party that we throw for ourselves about following God's guidance. It's true, I will grant the premise, it's true that, that we need God's direction for, for things that are far more complex than A or B, yes or no. And it's true that God no longer gives us that smoking pillar of fire and cloud uh, to highlight only one legitimate choice that we can make out of many. 
But let me ask you, what if he did? What if that really was how life worked? Do you think that it would make obedience any easier? What if you could spread out all those college brochures to the places you thought you wanted to go and you say, all right, Lord, show me the way, and you see the smoke and fire descend on the one that's resting in the trash bin where you've already put it? Because that's not where you wanted to go. What if the treatment that the Lord would have you choose is the one that you were afraid of in the first place? What if the conversation that he wants you to have is a lot more humbling than you're prepared for? What do you do if God's guidance calls you to follow him in a direction that you have already decided you do not want to go? You see, the challenge of this passage isn't whether we can follow the Lord when his guidance is simple. The challenge is whether we're willing to follow God's guidance at all. The question is whether we really believe that God has better plans than we think we can probably cook up for ourselves. It means this is a matter of communion. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of letting God be God, of letting his commands be commands and not just good advice and suggestions. That's why in just a few chapters we're going to see Israel standing there on the edge of the promised land looking into Canaan, and God will tell them, go in and take possession. And they say, I, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to go where God is telling me to go. I think I have better plans for myself than God has for me. I think we'll establish a delegation. We'll choose a leader for ourselves. We will march all the way back to Egypt. What are they going to do in Egypt? I don't know. Please take us back as your slaves. Please have a place for us. Please provide for us. The Lord is providing, but they don't want what he's giving them. And instead of the obedience that we see at the end of chapter 9, we will see in chapter 14, a nation in rebellion. Actually, as it turns out, clarity from the Lord is not the same thing as simplicity. We think that Guidance would be a lot easier, a lot simpler, if we just knew what God wanted us to do. But clarity is not the same thing as simplicity. Knowing what God wants you to do is not the same thing as trusting him enough to be willing to do it. I wonder if you notice the very deep trust in the Lord in the details of this passage that we read. It comes up in, in all that repetition. It comes up in very small things. Verse 20, sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. Verse 21, sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. Verse 22, whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out, but when it lifted, they set out. Don't you think there were people in the camp who were a little bit impatient and anxious? Don't you think that there were people who were exhausted and when the clouds set out the next morning, they thought, I can't go another step, I can't go any farther? Don't you think that the sheer clarity of God's guidance to move or to not move on any given day or month made it harder to follow the Lord than they imagined it would feel to follow themselves? Now, where does all this come home for us, though? I don't know every situation and, and 
uh, and thing and circumstance that you're facing, but I know that some of you are facing trouble in your marriages. I know that some of you are stuck uh, in cycles of broken relationships in your extended families, and quite frankly, for some of you, not all of you, for some of you, God's guidance is clearer on how to deal with those things than you might want it to be. You already know what he said in his commandments. You already know what he's told you in his scriptures, how he's told you to be quick to forgive, how he's told you to be eager to reconcile, how he's told you to be at peace with all men so far as it depends upon you. You know how he's told you to take the log out of your own eye before you go looking for other people's specks. You know that he's called you to humility. How he's called you in Christ Jesus to treat others more significant than yourselves. That's where some of you are. And you know what God is calling you to do, but you don't want to move with him. Now for others, perhaps. For others, the Lord is leading you in a timeline that you never would have chosen for yourself. His providence is moving at a pace that makes you feel impatient. Or it makes you feel exhausted. You can't take another thing. He's going to heap more on you and you can't follow. And instead you're tempted to make ungodly choices to try and regain a sense of control over the timing of your life. Either to speed things up a bit or to slow things down a little bit so that you can catch your breath. Give me this thing over here. Give me this other option that God is not calling me to. And for all of those situations, the Lord's command is clear. We are called to wait with him in faithfulness, or we are called to walk with him in obedience, and those are the only two choices. We're called to seek the wisdom that he gives us in his word, and we are called to be content to follow where he leads us, even if it's not the direction we would have chosen. I'll be the first to tell you that this doesn't answer all of your dilemmas and all of those what-ifs and what-nexts. But it does mean that your God can be trusted. It means that he leads his people perfectly. He leads us by his presence. He leads us by his command. Finally, the Lord leads us with his reminders. Chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. This is the kind of detail that Presbyterians love because it helps us and are bent toward well-ordered worship. When should we sit out? Ah, do, do whatever you want. No, 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 we've got something for that. We've got a trumpet. I say that a little bit tug-in-cheek, but not so much, actually, because you notice that in the previous chapter, Moses has just closed out by telling us that the whole nation had the benefit of God's visible, perpetual presence as a guide in the wilderness. They each had got direct access to God's direction for their lives. Where are we going? It's moving in that direction. Let's go. And yet, in chapter 10, the Lord commands the people not just to follow the cloud, but also to listen to the trumpets. Not to follow their own whims, not to choose their own timing for themselves, but instead to be organized and ordered, to be in their proper places. I told you this was a Presbyterian text. And this is an extension of what we've seen before, right? The Lord puts all the tribes in their chosen order. 
He assigns to each family the, the Merarites and the Gershonites and the Kohathites. He, he tells them each what they ought to carry and, and how they ought to do it and how their order uh, should be arranged. And he puts all of their families in the best jobs that they're supposed to do in the kingdom. And now the Lord tells them to submit their comings and their goings, not only to God's direct leadership, but also to the call of Moses and also to the call of the priests as they use these trumpets. As far as the details, uh, the, the text is pretty clear. Uh, you may remember that the Israelites already had their shofars, right? Those were the famous ram's horn trumpets. The priests would use those to announce the year of Jubilee or the Day of Atonement. Uh, these are supposed to be different. Uh, these are, are more ornamental, perhaps. They're made of solid silver, hammered flat, uh, formed into an instrument. Josephus says that in his day, these trumpets were about a foot and a half long, a cubit. Uh, there was a single pipe with a bell at the end. Later, not now, later, if you do an internet search for King Tut's trumpets, not now, later, you'll find a picture, probably, of a pair of silver trumpets that look very similar to what we imagine these must have looked like. They were made about the same time in Egypt by craftsmen there. They were buried in the tomb of King Tutankhamun. You can find them. And that also means that these were not trumpets like we think of today, right? You've got your, your valves and you've got all your beautiful notes that you can play. This is, this is not like that. Uh, this was a single note instrument. Think about a war horn. Think about the last time you were at a, uh, a big soccer match and there's that guy over there with that vuvuzela and it's just droning over the crowd. That's what these were. Pretty simple. Their primary purpose was to call the people to action. It was a tool for the people. And a long blast called the people together and, and short notes sent them out to march. And like most other aspects of their religious system, God left these trumpets in the hands of the priests. You see that in verse 8. In fact, in verses 8 to 10, this is where this text begins to look beyond the situation of the wilderness uh, to the time when, when God's people would live in a completely different context. And yet, he says, you're still going to need the guidance of God. He's telling them about what life will look like after the cloud is gone, after they can no longer see the fire. And he says, you're still going to need these tools. Take a look again at verses 8 and 9. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, and you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. And somebody says, wait a minute. What's all this talk about adversaries and oppression? Aren't we headed to Canaan? Aren't we headed to the land of promise? Aren't we going to go and inherit this beautiful gift that the Lord has given us, full of milk and honey and flowing with wine, the kind of place where we can have rest forever, where we can sit under the shade of our own vine and fig tree? Isn't this going to be the land of peace that God is bringing us into? Why do we still need trumpets of war in the land of God's promise? And if somebody had asked that question, and if the Lord had answered, perhaps he would say, you're still going to need the trumpets until the last enemy is defeated. There is never a moment's rest in this life you know. Even when he brings us into a, a life that feels settled, 
even after you've navigated all of those early life decisions about college and marriage and career and all those sorts of things, there's always another uh, war, another battle to be fought. There's always another decision to be followed. The Lord's not leading them to heaven yet. He will one day. And in fact, when we look into the New Testament, we find that the, the end is announced by a trumpet. Wonder of wonders, the trumpets of heaven will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and all the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God and of his Son. But not yet. Not yet. Even when life is settled. And the Lord is telling them that until that day, God's people will still need his signs. They'll still need his symbols to reassure us that God is with us that he's still fighting for us, that he's still defending his children, that he's still working to deliver us from the enemies of sin and oppression, both outside of our fellowship and inside of our hearts. And so you notice the language of reminder. Look again at verse 9. It says, In the time of war the trumpets will sound, but why? Not so that you may remember God, but so that you may be remembered before your God. The same thing shows up in verse 10. In times of worship, he says, blow the trumpets over the joy of your sacrifices. Why? He says, because they shall be a reminder of you before your God. That's a strange kind of remembrance, isn't it? We're not stirring up the minds of forgetful people. We are stirring up the heart of God who never forgets. He's giving them these trumpets almost like a prayer. Something that they can do, something that they can show forth, something that will reach the ears of God and reach the heart of God. In times of struggle, in times of cheer, they've got this prayer of these trumpets pleading with God not to let the least of his promises fail to come to completion. And the Lord is telling them, so long as you continue to be my people, whatever it is you're facing, whether worship or war, so long as you continue to be mine, see to it that you do not forget to remind me of my promises. I hope that you can see the parallel for God's people today. The New Testament church does not have trumpets like they had trumpets. You can use trumpets in worship, that's okay but not that kind of reminder, right? We, we do have reminders, though. We do have reminders for us. In fact, I think we have reminders before the Lord. Not that God forgets, but not that his knowledge needs our helping, but he does delight to have us come to his table week after week, doesn't he? He does love to call us to fellowship with him, to find fellowship with one another in the sacraments. He loves for us to come to him weak and weary, Sunday after Sunday, and as 1 Corinthians tells us, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do at the table. Until the last enemy is defeated, we proclaim the death of Jesus. We proclaim it to one another. And we proclaim it before the eyes of the world, and yes, I think we proclaim it before God who's made promises. The Lord who sent our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to die and to live. The same God who promises to send him again when the time is completed. And that too is one of the ways that the Lord guides us. We come all wrapped up in the daily struggles of navigating our lives and our careers and our sins and our families 
And the Lord calls us back to the table and he gives us a landmark. He gives us a reminder in his presence of what he's leading us toward. He tells us to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He tells us in the book of Revelation that what we're heading for is a marvelous marriage supper of the Lamb. And so the table is a reminder and a foretaste of where our story ends with him. And when we come to the table, we come crying out. Some people get all worked up when they come to the table. They get worked up because they're not sure if they've been good enough to come to the table this week. Maybe next week I'll do better. Maybe next week I'll get it together. Maybe next week I'll follow God a little more closely and then I can come to the table and I can take joy in his presence. That's not what the table is. The table is a prayer. Just like those trumpets. Oh Lord, remember your people. We are lost without you. Without your guidance, without your goodness, without your mercy and grace in Jesus, we're lost without you. That's what we do when we come to the table. And we take that tiny cup and we take that little piece of bread and we say, apart from him, I have no good thing. We don't come proclaiming that, that we followed well this week or next week or three months from now. We come to the table proclaiming that we're hungry, that we need to be fed, that we need his mercy and his goodness. And we come reminding the Lord of the promises he's made. It's one of the ways that God leads us to himself. There's, there's always a lot more we could say about guidance. There's a lot more in this passage that we're not going to touch. Uh, and if you are one of those people that is dealing with, with a very specific instance of what should I do here in my life, maybe the best thing for you to do is to do what Moses did later to find somebody wiser than you, somebody who's been down that same road before to give you wise counsel, and maybe you'll need humility to listen when they speak to you. And there's always more we can say, and this doesn't answer all of our questions about God's guidance, but I think it ought to be our starting place. It ought to be the home base that we come back to over and over again as we walk with the Lord. Because the Lord leads his people by assuring us that he's with us. And he leads us by teaching us how to trust him enough to follow. And he leads us by reminding us of where our story ends in Christ Jesus. And so he leads us by his presence. He leads us by his command. He leads us by his reminders. And we can trust that the Lord always leads his people perfectly. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would meet us at your table for those who are journeying with you and those who are not yet, we pray that you would call them. We pray that you would uh, call all those who have not trusted in you to faith and repentance. Convince them, O oh Lord, that you are true and trustworthy. And for those who are walking with you, O oh Lord, accept our weariness, accept our impatience, Accept our empty, sinful hearts yearning to be filled with the merits of Jesus Christ. O oh, Father, lead us all our days and all our journey with you. Lead us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name.